Welcome to the Looper Podcast, a show where we make the rounds with interesting golf personalities. Here's your host, Eric Payton. Hey everyone, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Before we get started, if you could do us a huge favor and go rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts, we would really appreciate that. I'm really excited for today's guest. Uh, He's a guy I've been following and learning from for quite a while now, and there's a good chance that you have been too. He's a man behind the popular Society of Golf Historians and host of the Talking Golf History podcast. I know you're going to love this conversation because I sure did. So without further delay, here's the conversation. This is uh, Connor Lewis, the founder of the Society of Golf Historians and host of Talking Golf History. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Um, my first question for you is just how did you get started playing the game of golf? Well, first off, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're uh, welcome. How did I get started? You know, I started really late, and I mean really late. Like, I think I was just under 30 years old. Okay. And my brother was working at Shields All Sports, if I believe, and he got me a set of Callaway irons and I, you know, I, Callaway irons, I think Callaway driver. And he's like, listen, let's go out and play golf. And he had played maybe a couple years before I started. And we started, I think my first official round was at airport national. Yeah. And, Cedar and I have no real, like great memories other than that volcano hole. I've never played there. I just it. heard, I've just heard rumors and legends of it. <laughs> You know, I put this out on uh, Twitter, I don't know, a couple months ago, and I said, you know what? If they just, like, invested a little money in a new logo, Mm. I think they could make more money in merchandising than they can running that club. Okay, yeah. I mean, imagine, like, a biplane with a flat, like, a flagstick sticking off the the back of it. You know, like, ruddering or kind of crooked or kind of beat down. Yeah. You know, I just... There's so much you can do with that. Yeah. So my last guest actually on the podcast was Kate Smith, who's a, um, she just, um, she's on the, like the um, developmental uh, LPGA um, mm-hmm. tour. Um, and she's from my alma mater, which is Nebraska, which I didn't want to tell you because I know you're an Iowa guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but she, her side business is doing logos. And we were just talking in the last episode about like the potential in logos and golf courses. But Anyway, oh. I'll, I'll, I'll let you, you continue. Know, I, you know what I call I, I call Lincoln. I just call it Western Iowa because we own them. Yes. Well, for the last <laughs> yeah eight years, it's it seemed like that, and it's difficult to live in Iowa being a Nebraska Cornhusker mm. fan. So <laughs> can't even imagine. Yeah. Someday it'll turn on us. Parents will retire, and we'll be in low times, and I'll just you know I won't be answering any of those tweets about how bad Iowa is. And that's I've been very quiet over the last eight years when it comes to football. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <clears throat> So, yeah, yeah, no, I started Airport National. Uh, I'll give you, I, I mean, it was probably a couple rounds in, and I was playing Pleasant Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I say this on um, Twitter, it's usually, I say my second ever round was at PV. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let everybody think, you know, yeah. Pine Valley, of course. Yeah, right. Pleasant Valley. And I remember distinctly that I had 19 golf balls in my bag, and I had to quit on the 17th hole because I ran out of all of them. Okay. And I, I believe I might have thrown a club. Sorry, folks. And I said, why does anybody play this dumb game? 
and then the next week I was playing again. So, you know, yeah. that's the yeah. game we love and hate, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, then what what made you take the shift from like just starting to play the game to then the history of the game? Oh, well, you know, I moved to Portland. So I started to get well gradually better. I just started playing all the time, right? I still have habits today that leak over from those early days because I was so afraid playing in Portland, Oregon, that I was going to slow people down. So like, I don't even take a practice swing anymore. Mm. Or I never have because okay. I, I just felt like if I'm going to play bad, play fast, and nobody <laughs> will know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> and so years passed. Um, I moved back to Iowa, uh, and I worked for Mayo Clinic, hmm. and it was in the middle of winter. And for whatever reason, I, I think I was going to go see the folks at the Iowa Health System. And I remember I had my clubs because the only place, at least back then, that you could hit balls in Iowa was the Golf Dome in Des Moines. Yep. Is that still around, by the way? No. A couple years ago, they tore it down. Oh, yeah, Yeah. So to describe this to folks, it was kind of like the lower level of Frosty the Snowman, basically blown up. I, I don't know if it's silk or plastic in this like dome and you know it had astroturf mats and you just you know hit balls i don't know how you think you had like 30 yards 50 yards what do you think how big do you think that dome was um i think it might have been 80 or 90 i think you could wow okay all right well that's better than i thought i i I always felt like it was longer but then you think about and you're like 80 or 90 or even 50 yards that's pretty big sometimes when you think about yeah yeah, but like when you're hitting drivers in there, it's it's barely getting you know it's it's yes, still rising yes. quite a ways after it you'd hit the hear, back of it'd the. It go clink off the club, and you'd hear the thud of it hitting the other side. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I just wanted to hit balls, and I, I remember um, now that I'm thinking about, it, I was supposed to play TPC Sawgrass that March, so okay. I just wanted to get some you know swings in because yeah. of course winter can be very difficult to play golf in Iowa. So anyway, I I got done with my work meeting, went to the dome and there was this dreaded like end of the year golf sale for the entire city of Des Moines. Like anybody flamingo shirts that didn't sell, they'd send it to this clearest clearance event in the dome. I was probably there. There's there's a good chance I was there. I mean, like, I mean, God bless them. But like that stuff was terrible. Oh yeah. Uh, if you bought a shirt, you'd have a rash the next year from wearing it. There are problems with it. But anyway, I go in, and there's these two guys at the end of this thing, Russ Fisher and Bill Reed, and they're wearing knickers, mm-hmm. right? Or plus fours if you're British and you're listening to this. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're wearing the, the outfit, if you were to attribute it to now a more recent version of Payne Stewart. And so they had their, you know, newsboy caps on and dress shirts and ties on and they're standing with all these hickory shafted clubs and and i've always had a passing you know like i would say for history not love mm-hmm. like i'm not re- reading war and peace or anything like that but i've i'm generally have been interested in history mm-hmm. and i went over and i started looking at these hickory shafted clubs and they had um a driver a spoon and a brassy that were walter Hagen's. Oh, wow. And I knew of Walter Hagen. I, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't know as much as I know now, but I knew of Walter Hagen. So yeah. the, they basically said, hey, do you, do you want to go hit these on the range? Okay. And, and I said, like, every single soul that has ever tried hickory for the first time, meh, better not, I might break them. Yeah. To which they said, 
people have been hitting these clubs for a hundred years, you ain't going to break them. <laughs> and if you do, don't worry about it. It's free. So I go out and hit, you know, I don't know, 20 shots. And I was, I was literally just amazed how good they hit. I mean, they just came off the club. They made a beautiful sound. And I came back to them. I'm like, okay, we're buying these. Um, but I need to have irons. I need a putter. And I instantly went to saying, you know, I want a set that is just like Bobby Jones played. Mm. And I'm like, what are, what are the best set of irons that I can get that are hickories? And they said, um, Tom Stewart RTJs. And that's Robert Trent Jones or Robert Tyre Jones. My apologies. Mm. Um, which was Bobby Jones from 1926 to say 1929. Tom Stewart made a lot of Bobby Jones's clubs, not all of them. Okay. And on two occasions, his clubs were lost and he made full sets for Bob Jones. And what happened uh, is that he kept making those molds and would stamp RTJ on them for sale. And mm. Bob Jones was a little worried he'd lose his amateur status and essentially oh, wrote yeah. and, you know, please cease and assist. I don't want to lose my amateur status because you're making money off of my initials. Yeah. So they're very, very rare. And uh, both Russ and uh, Bill said, yeah, you're never going to find that set. But I devised, you know, a, a technique to find them and purchase them and play them that I've used over my entire collecting career that has basically built up my golfers. Okay, that's, yeah. that's the story of how I started playing hickories and getting yeah. into golf history. And so once you start playing hickory, I think you want to learn more about the game. Yeah. And that took me down many rabbit holes. There is this like... It... I, I have a hickory set and I for about a year tried to play as much as I could with it um, it's it is it's like when you when you hit it really good it's really good mm, but it's also yeah. when you hit it really bad it's really bad um, so it oh. can be a little frustrating I don't know if maybe my my set's kind of crummy because I, I just got well, it off of eBay but too, right what's that you, you've got to factor in the shafts so, mm -hmm. you know, when you're buying a hickory, it, it is way more complicated than, you know, going to the golf store and getting a stiff set of shafts. Mm. Fortunately, Russ Fisher was kind of a genius savant when it came to hickory shafted clubs. Okay. And so we get went in. It was, hey, let's make sure we can get some shafts that match my swing. And so he actually mm -hmm. went in and he did things that weren't available back then, but he yeah. checked the, the frequency of the shaft, each shaft that he had in a shaft in his shop and he would match them to the stiffness of what I needed. So it's, it's also a, a canard that, um, you know, hickory is whippy. Hickory can be just as stiff as steel. Okay. Uh, I have, I have a extra stiff, uh, hickory shaft in my collection that I've, I've actually played. Hmm. Uh, but you can find everything from extremely whippy to board, you know, unbendable thickness, if you will, yeah. or stiffness. And so mm -hmm. basically he set me up with uh, shafts that would match. I didn't have to. Bobby Jones went through, you know, 400 different shafts to make a set. And we have the technology now to look at these hickory shafts and actually match them closer to your swing dynamics, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I was in uh, Omaha, I was a pro at uh, Omaha Country Club for a little bit, um, and they had a, uh, a a golf store in Omaha called Classic Randy Golf. Randy Jensen. Randy Jensen. Yes, 
Yeah. Good friend of mine. Good guy. Is he? Okay. And yeah, eight the, the... time national hickory champion. Yeah. 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 He was like a legend with, with all that, those uh, competitions. And so I'd gone in, in there and just kind of gotten, that was where I fir- first bought my first hickory. Um, it was a really cool shop right on Dodge. And, and uh, I don't think it's around anymore or else they've moved. Um, but I remember talking to him and he gave me uh, was it Ross Fisher? Do you say or Russ Fisher? Russ Russ Fisher. And what was the other name you mentioned of the guy in Des Moines? Uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, Bill Reed. Bill Reed. Those there names both John sound very. Austin. John Austin was uh, there oh, yeah. at. Uh, He's what club? Yeah, Hyperion. Hyperion. Thank he you. was yeah. Okay, so I was I my, my first job was a uh, bag boy at Hyperion, and John was the uh, superintendent. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely, I, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I didn't. I didn't realize he was into that. Um, oh okay. yeah, big time player. Yeah, so like in my wallet right now, I still have the, the a card that um, Randy at Classic Golf gave me of these guys in Des Moines, and I never have reached out to him or. But but he, what you're saying is, I remember having this conversation with him, saying him just saying like, "Oh, he'll hook you up with everything you need. He knows it all. He's he's like the expert on this stuff." So yeah, he's like daft whisperer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I may have to uh, update my hickory uh, set a little bit because I got frustrated with it. I was I'm I'm not nearly good enough apparently to play those, but um, that's that's really cool that uh, you know all those guys and that's where you you got started with that. So yeah, they're good guys. They yeah. really are. No, I, I believe Russ has moved out to the East Coast. Oh, has he? But okay. John Austin and Bill Reed are still in town. Okay, I'll have to look them up. Um. Okay, so you kind of get started with Hickory Golf. Um, is that what kind of spun you off into, like, you know, did you go down a bunch of different rabbit holes on information on golf yeah. history? And, th- and then where did where did starting the your Twitter handle, I assume, was the first part of kind of collecting that? It uh, was. Your research? Yeah, I'd say for a good um, decade to decade and a half, I just – absorbed golf history and uh right or wrong my wife will say my memory like for names is terrible but for whatever reason since you know turning 30 to whatever i am i'm 48 this year anything that i read from golf history just sticks in my brain Mm. you know my recall for golf history for whatever reason i have no explanation for it's not like that for almost anything else in my life (laughs) i just i'll remember and so I just absorbed as much as I could and just went, 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 went. And um, so, you know, it naturally just grew. I started um, collecting really in 2008 um, on a trip to Scotland. Uh, nearly almost got divorced for that, which is a joke I tell on mm. Twitter. <laughs> I went over to Scotland and a crate of antiquities beat me home. Okay. And inside <laughs> the crate was an invoice that was for, you know, it was a five-figure invoice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I told the proprietor of, of said shops not to include the invoice because it's if that beat me home, I could have a discussion and, you know, kind of walk it through. Yeah. And I get a phone call from my wife. It's like, what have you done? And I'm yeah. like, oh, I'm, I'm not falling in for that trap. Like, you know, which time? You know, what, what are we talking about? Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, did I crack the you know the glass in the bedroom with a with a golf ball? Yes, but yeah. and so yeah, that was that was yeah, I got in trouble for that. But ultimately, what happened is I was on Twitter, 
no, I wasn't. I was on Facebook, and oh. a golf buddy of mine, uh, Brian Knotza, is um, he plays golf. He's, he just finished the top 100 uh, United States. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to play all these great golf courses along with the golf history in the last five or so years. And he goes, you know, you know a lot about history. You should be on Twitter. And I was mm-hmm. like, God, nobody's going to care. I mean, like, I mean, nobody's going to care. Like, nobody cares about golf history, but sure, why not? So I did it. And the account was growing at an absurd rate. I really, I've only been on Twitter for, I think, three years, maybe. Oh, and wow. we're okay. pushing 20,000 people. And and then from that, um, Rod Morey found me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think State of the Game. Was it State of the Game or one of the other podcasts that he used to run with Adrian Logue? And they had me on as a guest. And uh, he said that, you know, people responded well to it. I should have a podcast. And again, I'm like, who's going to listen to this yeah. dumb podcast? Like, yeah. you know, like, you're just going to have me, like, ramble on and people and. And who knew? I, I didn't know it was going to be as popular as it is. And it kind of took on a life of its own. And, you know, everything was a happy accident. None of it was yeah. planned. So you why, know, do you think, the... why do you think people are so drawn to golf history? Because it doesn't seem to me, like when, when I think of other sports, that you get as many history nerds about the, you know, about... I don't know about basketball um, or it, maybe it's, maybe I'm just not aware of that, that no, community, but it seems like base, golf lends itself more to. Yeah. Like, I'd discovering say baseball the history. strongest, right? Baseball. Like baseball. They just love their history. Like hmm. golfers, we kind of like our history, but for the most part, the average golfer history does not extend further back than Ben Hogan. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's, you know, Ben Hogan's iconic. Very few people, I'd say, okay, so if you're going to kind of uh, take a poll of people and their, you know, knowledge of golf history, it ends probably at Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Byron Nelson, and may extend just barely past that to a passing notice of Bobby Jones because of the Masters Tournament. Yeah. And nothing really before that. Um, And yet on my podcast, I always tell people, um, you know, we have an amazing number of followers that listen to the podcast. And I'm always asked like, you know, how, how big could you be? And I was like, you know, I'll never know because I'm just, I'm not interested in telling the history. This is awful. This I probably should admit this. <laughs> I'm not interested in telling the, the history that people want to hear. It's mm-hmm. the history that I want to tell. So in yeah. other words, if I wanted to get, you know, 50% more listeners, my episodes would be about Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, yeah. Tiger Woods. And yeah. I have not yet, I'm not saying I never will, but I have yet to do a podcast on those three at all because yeah. those histories are fairly well known. Yeah. You know, and I think people like to hear it again, but, you know, I'd much rather tell, you know, different stories. Um, stories that, you know, the stories I try to tell, I think this is the best way to put it aren't just about golf history, but how we connect to it. Mm. So if I'm telling the, the, you know, the history of um, Al Guyberger, right? Like he was on the podcast Mm -hmm. just recently. Um, It's telling his story in a way that I'd like to think that people can connect to it, even if they're not a professional golfer. Yeah. And when I tell stories of something that happened in the 1800s, for instance, the, the, the pitch I suppose to the modern golfer is it's a story of how we got here. 
Yeah. Not necessarily a throwaway story that only means something to in the 1860s. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And you do a really good job of, of telling a story rather than just stating facts. And, and <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's easier to connect with. It's easier to remember and it's easier to see yourself in it. If, yeah. if you're the listener, you know, you can funny story on that. So people always ask me, what's my favorite episode? And I truly don't, I have, I have one episode that I hate that I'm not going to tell you about. Okay. And it's really, no, I'm not going to tell you why. Yeah. But there's one episode that I, I don't really listen to my podcast anymore. Other Because you know this as well as I do. When you edit it, you really listen to it like four times. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of know what's going on. Um, but early on, I would listen to it, you know, one or two times to kind of critique myself. And I, and I gained a lot from that. But the episodes that I love the most... Um, generally speaking, the audience doesn't love them as much hmm. and I'm okay with that. And those are the, the golf from the fringe episodes where okay. it's a narrated story to music and edited in of a unique event in golf history. For instance, yeah. the champion who lost his mind was about Johnny McDermott. These mm-hmm. episodes tend to be 30 minutes long, but they probably take me 90 hours to put together because i have to research it yeah then i have to write it then i have to narrate it then i have to edit it and then i'm putting music in yeah and then so it's it it wears on me to a level that i can't even admit to Mm -hmm. and yet you know to me those stories are only told in that form because it's the only way they could be told correctly Mm -hmm. i'd rather do what we're doing right now, which is have a conversation. Yeah. It, it it's much easier to sit down and have a conversation with someone than to create this story and this um it's it, you're like writing a book or a movie yeah. with yeah. without the visual part of it. You're you're putting all these pieces together and it's yeah, I can't imagine that how yeah. complicated those episodes would be You'll get compared a to what I'm doing. Of like for instance when I did uh, the golf club without a course, which is a really fascinating story mm-hmm. about Pittsburgh golf club, um, I literally put in sound effects from an original horn from original Model T. Oh yeah, and I put in golf spikes on wood in the you know like in the sound effects. Like yeah. I was really plugging the stuff away, and literally nobody cares. <laughs> but I was like, oh, keep going. But you know. Uh, the thing I take away from it, I guess the one sense of pride is I believe they were the first ever narrative podcast on the game of golf. Yeah. Everything had been, you know, now they're out there. The fried egg has uh, Garrett does a narrative. That's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, with the fried egg. And, you know, I don't, I'm not saying I kicked off what they were doing, but I was, I believe the first one to do it. And mm-hmm. in that regard and the stories they tell that really it would be hard to tell in an interview it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't really think of, I listen to the Friday egg every so often, but as far as ones that I consistently listen to, there's, there's not another, not another one like yours that I even can think of that I've even listened to once. So it's a, yep. it, it's, it's still a very unique, um, experience that you create in your podcast. And so, um, 
and it's very very well done so if <laughs> anyone's <laughs> listening go if you're, if you're not yeah. already listening to, your, to the podcast talking golf history is phenomenal and i'll I link to the show notes but i'm guessing most of the people that have, are listening to this already know your podcast but uh just in case there aren't we'll we'll you know, I, I tell people the key to a podcast is just carry and be exciting. Mm-hmm. Be excited about what you do. Like, I think if you're excited about it, other people are going to be excited about it. And yeah. and why shouldn't you be? It's golf, right? It's amazing yeah. sport with amazing people. And I, I, I tell people all the time, golfers are literally the best people. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have been able to play all these, you know, great courses that I played if it weren't for great golfers, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and because of that, I get to explore their history. And, you know, it's just it's absolutely fascinating. And all these stories combine into one amazing narrative as to why golf is the greatest of sports. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I when I think of um, when I think of golf history and I, it's it's also a, a unique sport in that it's so old Mm, yeah it, there's there's so much unknown to it and so like yeah. i like i like going to your podcast and there's so much i don't know about golf but i've played it my entire life um i don't know how we got to where we are I, you know like in general kind of bits and pieces of like how we got to the modern game but there's not like a uh name naismith who invented basketball there's not like a yep. um, a specific moment in time where a, a individual invented this modern game and it's an yeah. evolutionary, it was evolution of a lot of different phases and stuff. And, um, and so even thinking back, you know, a hundred years, it's a, it's the same game, but it's a different game, you know? For sure. And, and when did this all start? You know, like I, I got really interested that I want something I want to ask you later is about Sabbath sticks. And I think I've messaged you before on Twitter about that. Um, but like, those are five six hundred years old you know or yeah my, understa- are, my understanding is um yeah. maybe i'm wrong um 1990s and 1900s there are modern versions but are there okay yeah and people and, just rules yeah yeah and so uh, i guess kind of my question would be is how would you describe how golf was invented like the the, the modern game however you want to call the yeah. modern game um Oh, where, where does where does that start for you and how was golf how does golf begin that's a great question so i'd say the beginning of golf you know i i don't think well nobody really knows but uh, I'll, i'd say many historians and historians that existed 140 years ago seem to be of the opinion uh that golf uh essentially evolved from the game colvin right okay. which was a stick and ball game uh played in the netherlands Usually it was on ice or it was a winter game and it was a ball and stick and you would basically hit the ball uh, starting at one point to go to another. It didn't, you know, there weren't 18 holes. There was no hole in the ground. It was basically going to hit to a a finite object in the distance. Hmm. And what is believed, this is like in the 1400s, is that early trading with the Dutch, and I'm going to put a little bit of my opinion versus where it started in Scotland. I believe, uh, mind you, it's just a belief, it's not proven, that uh, one of the, the strongest ports in Scotland was um, uh, Edinburgh and the port of Leith, right? And I believe that uh, the game of Colvin essentially came to Scotland 
through the port of Leith hmm. and may have uh, been played the earliest game in, in Leith itself on what is now, well, what well, I think it's still Leith Links, but it was one of these old golf courses that disappeared and is now a park okay. in Leith. Now, I think the same argument can be made for the Dutch going to ports in St. Andrews and in Perth. So I think between Perth, uh, Edinburgh, and St. Andrews, and maybe all at the same time, and it kind of morphed, you know, these ball and stick games were being played on, you know, sandy soils. And perhaps I'm just now this is I've heard other people speculate that yeah. one of those balls rolled into a rabbit hole that I don't there, yeah. there's no proof of that. And someone had an aha moment of what if we just had holes in the ground? Yeah. Um, the modern game, however, uh, I mean, it's a great question because the mo- what does that mean? Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Proctor has a new book coming out. Yeah. Uh, that is going to be, I mean, I've read it, so it's, it's not okay. fair to say, uh, you know, that I think it'll be great. I know it's going to be great. Uh, he had, gave me an early edit of it to take a look at. And his book really takes off around when the golf, you know, golf became kind of a modern game. And that's, you know, kind of that 1890s to 1920s is where it really started to take shape. Okay. You could go back further to like 1840s when the gutta percha ball was essentially invented. Mm-hmm. And that brought golf to the masses. So from like 1840 to like 1880, there was a tremendous growth of, of the game of golf. And then, of course, from 1880 to like 1920, there was an explosion across the world of golf. Okay. And, you know, there were players like Harry Varden that came to the United States in 1900, where golf was already established, mind you. Yeah. But he did this worldwide tour of the United States before the U.S. Open. And it just like it took off like wildfire in the United States. Okay. It went from fringe to like mainstream yeah. within a decade. And oh. I think you could trace that back to Varden here in the States. Hmm. You know, you'd look at, I'd say the golf ball. I think if you traced the history of each golf ball, it would be the best way to tell the history of the game of golf because oh, yeah. you had the gutty, which pretty much brought, all social classes into the game. And then in the, Just based on the price. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. a feathery okay. ball would cost more than, you know, your, your a brand new driver. I mean, it was oh. ridiculous. Okay. You know, it was a yeah. day's wait for the average man to buy one golf ball. I gotcha. Okay. But that, like rubber substitution. That was a solid ball that you could play forever. And if it, if it warped out of shape, you could go home and warm it up and reshape it with your hands and go back the next day. Oh, nice. <laughs> and then, you know, so then you have that. And then in the late 1890s, uh, you have Haskell invents the Haskell ball. Mm-hmm. And we have the rubber bound uh, wound ball, which picks up, you know, 40, 50 yards for every single player who played it almost overnight. Mm. And I think you could argue justifiably that the renaissance of golf in America, the, the you know, the, the golden generation that we all talk about can all come back to, you could say CB McDonald, but I'll bet you anything you tie it into the Haskell ball. And that's really the reason why we had all these golf courses like Marion, Oakmont, uh, national golf links of America, all the, you know, Chicago golf club was um, renovated by Seth Rayner in the 1920s, a little late in mm. this period. All of that comes from, the golf ball changing. Now we're in the Pro V1. 
right? Yeah. We're at the age of the Pro V1 and the, and, and the multi-layer ball. And how is that going to change our history? I think the golf yeah. ball is seminal to every single history that is told in the entirety of the game. That's interesting because that's that's the modern discussion still is yes. is the ball is the ball traveling too far and just to hear that the the one golf ball added 40 to 50 yards to everyone can you imagine what right what yeah what the what the ball's adding you know whether it's roll back to or whatever your you know position is is if we're rolling back to the 90s you're not you're not i i don't think I don't, i'm not deep in the numbers but i don't think it's that much it's not 40 or 50 yards like you're saying with with yards. the move to this ball well and I'll argue for the average golfer, there's not much movement at all. Right. I mean, the average I think hits at 210, maybe something like that. And yeah. if I think look back in the 90s, they were probably hitting around 200, 210. Yeah. So I, I think you look at the elite levels of the game, and there's been an explosion of distance. Yeah. Uh, for some players, not all players, but some. But I think if you look back also and rewind it to people hated the, the gutty ball. People mm. hated the bound ball. People hated, you know, like it's a reoccurring theme throughout golf history yeah. is the ball too far. Yeah. That's, that's interesting how we're as much changes. It still stays, stays the same in some sense that uh, we're all talking about the same thing and in a different way. Yeah. I'll tell you this, Eric, there's a, there's an interesting twist here because in um, 1931 was the last major rollback of the ball. Uh, so obvious is after I always joke that Bobby Jones retired at the right time or he knew they were going to roll back the ball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the case. But they, re- they he retired after winning the Grand Slam yep. and they rolled back the ball. And the first nickname for that 1931 ball was the balloon ball. Hmm. And it wasn't universally hated. But holy cow, a lot of the golf world came out against it. And there were articles of like runs on golf shops to get the old ball, quote oh, unquote, yeah. ball. you know, like, you know, people are going to be stocking these things up for, yeah. you know, buying and so they can have them for decades to come. Cause they're against this new rollback. And, and that ball lasted less than a year. Oh, and yeah. it, it was larger and lighter. It just wasn't flying as far. So the USGA made some tweaks to essentially to give us to where we are today. Yeah. yeah. And I just think that's fascinating. Cause so like, what if they roll back the ball, are we going to have a repeat of 1931 yeah. where people make a run on golf balls and mm-hmm. then, Oh, you know, we overdo it. And then, you know, six months to a year later have to come back to something in the middle. Yeah. That's what makes they, it, you know, fun. Yeah. I, and I remember when they, you know, they changed the grooves on wedges and oh, yeah. I, I knew people who would go and, you know, they bought three sets of wedges and they're like, I'm going to need these. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always thought that was a little, a little ridiculous, but you well, know, if you really need those grooves, yeah. Um, I mean, maybe they did. The yeah. problem is, those people who bought them probably didn't even spin the ball to start with. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> it, it didn't. It didn't make all that much difference. Yeah. Right. It's a mental thing. But uh, yeah. Um. Well, I I feel like you, you had mentioned just earlier that that you know people's mind or, or mental history of golf or of uh, yeah of golf goes you know, yeah. Ben Hogan and maybe stretches to Bobby Jones. Um, the, the guy I think of just when I think of golf history in general is old Tom Morris and St. Andrews. And that yes. that's, that's a topic that a, a lot of um, maybe people who are really deep in the game really go to. Um, but is there, is there a 
topic or a person or a focus in golf history that you really gravitate towards? Not, I'm, I'm not saying necessarily no. old Tom or St. Andrews, but like that is your favorite thing to research and that you just. That's a good uh, question. Yeah, I would say I have an affinity. I, I mean, I'll give you a broad stroke and then I'll give you like uh, fine strokes. So my broad stroke statement is golf prior to 1900. Like if, if you look at the golf as mm-hmm. uh, minus like the painting I have of Lido and Sleepy Hollow and Cypress Point, everything else in my golf is I have a, a pre 1900 set of clubs from Musabra. I have a whole wall dedicated to Musabra, which is kind of a finer stroke and everything else is pre 1900. And the reasoning why I love pre 1900 golf, whether it's in America or over across the seas is that we were still trying to figure out what the game was. And we were doing mm-hmm. it while things were being invented that were changing the game, right? So mm. it, I love, like, the stories of our early U.S. amateurs and U.S. Opens and, you know, the English, you know, based, the English invasion, if you will, of, like, Varden and, um, you know, uh, John Ball of Hoy Lake starting to win Open Amateur and really taking a, a strong position in the game that really expanded outside of Scotland. That's fascinating to me. Hmm. But what I love as much as anything is a story that I would say, you know, uh, it's like underdog story, right? Okay. Yeah. And, and that's why I have in my, in the golf is I have an entire wall de- dedicated to the old course at Musselboro links. So Musselboro okay. links is the only open championship venue to host the open with only nine holes. Okay. And from, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to screw this up. I think 18, I want to say 1884 to 1892 might get those dates wrong. Forgive me. I'm going ahead. Uh, they hosted, uh, you know, the open championship every three years with St. Andrews and Prestwick. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, they had, uh, Willie Park, Willie Park Jr. They had Bob Ferguson, um, they had David Brown, um, Mungo Park. There were five golfers that came from Musselboro Links that won the Open Championship. Okay. And so here's this town. It was it was literally one of the golfing hubs. It was between it and St. Andrews, the two twin golfing hubs of the world. Like right? wow. they had golf ball manufacturers, club manufacturers, Open Championship winners. The Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers had their headquarters there, you know, their offices. The They played at Musselboro Links after Leith Links before yeah. they, in 1892, they went to Muirfield. And how I just, and now it's like a forgotten golf course. And that's unfair yeah. to say that. But the average golfer does not know the story of Musselboro Links. Is it still nine? And what's it? Yeah, still nine holes. And yeah. it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. I have a, a painting of it uh, in Pandy Play Two More that I'm looking at right now. And Pandy was this tremendously, you know, massive and penal bunker at Musselboro. And in the back, in the, you know, you know, back part of the painting, uh, you can see uh, the first of fourth, right? The sea, essentially. Hmm. And what's interesting from 1892 to modern days, that first was filled in from mining, like excavating the mining and they filled it in. And if I'm not mistaken, the sea hole at um, Musabra was called the sea hole. It was on the water. Is now about a half mile from the Firth. 
Okay. That's how much fill was put in to the first to like fill it up. So now wow. it's a half mile from the, from the water. It's Jeez. unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you see this painting, you see the water, you play the course, you're nowhere near the water. Yeah. <laughs> nowhere near it. And it's, you know, a fascinating aspect to me. Huh. But I love that underdog story. I did a podcast called um, The Stolen Major, which may be, oh, it might be my favorite podcast. Is and it? it's okay. about, in 1892, it was due to ho- host the Open Championship again. Okay. And about 95 days before it hosted the Open, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers you know, I'd say this is a brazen word, but stole the open championship and took it to Muirfield mm. with 95 days notice. Wow. That, you know, we're, I don't know. Are we, how many days are we now from the masters? We're probably yes. not far, right? Yeah, 95. Probably. Think yeah. about this. We're this, this far out. People have their mind on the masters and they decide to move it, it to Yemen's hall. Yeah. Right. That's like crazy. Like, that's what it would be like. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, the story of how in 1892, this the major, at least from the perspective of Musselboro, was stolen, and how it essentially changed the history and future of Musselboro forever. Yeah. Like, you know, all these different clubs, like Royal Musselboro left the yeah. club. All these club makers left the area. The ball makers left, you know, and, and went other places. Did it have anything and, to do with it was that it was just a nine hole course? Like they yeah, did, that's they, exactly what that's that's what it was. Absolutely. That the issue. Really, you know, that's not fair to say. It's not completely fair to say because Presswick was only twelve. The real kicker was not that it was a nine hole course, but the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, rightfully so, they moved one of the oldest you know golf clubs in all golf. They created the first rules of the game, but they moved because there were four or five different clubs at the course, and quite frankly, they couldn't get you know, the opportunity to play the golf course. It was overcrowded. Oh. Not so much the open, mind you, but like just casual play, club yeah. play, if you will. So they were like, listen, I get it. Let's, we're, we're going to change and we're going to move to our own club and we're going to have full control. We're not going to have, it's not going to be on public land like most of the golf courses in Scotland, like we can all get on, mm-hmm. but we're going to own our own club and we're mm-hmm. going to own our 18-hole co- course and we're going to host the open and we're going to be able to control the conditioning of it and how often we get to play it. And so, you know, that's the path that, you know, the, the game took. Yeah. And, and Musabra, for the most part, has, you know, went into some level of obscurity because that, of that. And yeah. I've done my best, at least, to help bring it back into the limelight when I can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, in this discussion of, like, I just think of the, the number of holes. You said there, you know... A, Prestick was a 12 hole. It was Prestick, yep. right? It was 12 holes. Yep. Muscle bro, bro was nine and then 18 holes. We've got most of the time now, if you, you know, that's the number we shoot for. Yeah. So I, like I, I said to you off, off uh, air uh, that I was the, I used to be a pro at Prairie Dunes um, and you've done two episodes on Prairie Dunes and, you know, part of their history is being a nine hole course and being, you know, for so long they were the, the, the greatest nine hole course. Um, I don't know if that was an official title or that's an official title or whatever it is. Probably a fair statement back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so even when you play it, 
you know, I, I've get gotten some flack from time to time when people ask what my favorite hole is and I say 14 and they're like, oh, a press hole, you know, like that, <laughs> that you, you like the, the, the kind of the lesser one of the holes on the lesser nine, you know, there's, yeah. there's still this like the, the, um, this loyalty to the original nine. Um, yeah, that's kind of I fun. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious to ask you about your experience at Prairie Dunes because that I consider that place home for so long and that's my favorite, favorite course and favorite probably place on earth. Um, but what, how did you originally get connected there and wanting to do a, a Prairie Dunes episode? Gosh, that's a great question. I, I think um, my partner in crime, Story Lounge Films, Vaughn Halyard, I think Vaughn said, let's go do it. I know I had business in St. Louis. I'm building a surgery center medical office building there. So I was kind of not, nowhere it's hard to say that's in the same area. It's not, but it was the <laughs> same part of America. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, if we go, I'll just, how about we go a day early? And, and it turned out to be two days early and we go play Prairie Dunes. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I knew it was going to be good, but you know, you like you drive there and nothing before you get on the property looks like you're going to experience what you're about ready to experience. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, I can't remember. What is the, Oh gosh. What is the, um, it's like a, a, you know, a stone grinder or something. You know, there's a, what is that just off the property where, um, that big industrial building that's just oh, off the, pro- the, they've got the, um, grain elevators, right? Grain elevators. That's yeah, what I'm like the world's, it was at one point is the world's largest grain elevator. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. But I added that in the podcast. Yeah. I, but, oh, you're driving by a grain elevator and you're like, what is you know, like, it's right here. Like the GPS says like, I'm a couple hundred yards away. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. And then you pull in and I mean, I think immediately. So I, I think I arrived three hours before Vaughn was put up in one of the cottages mm-hmm. and it happened to be during that time of the, uh, the California wildfires were really bad that year okay. and the, the smoke was like affecting the way, uh, you know, the like sunset, oh. you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was like, you know, it was almost like eerie, almost magical, almost ghost-like sunsets. Yeah. Yeah. And Vaughn wasn't there yet. And I was walking out on the course, you know, at sunset with my camera and I was just like, Oh man, I'm like this place. I, I think I just kept calling Vaughn like this place. I wouldn't even finish. I'd just say this place. Yeah, <laughs> I just kept yeah. you know like over. And we had to wait till the next day. And the plan was to go play 18 holes uh, and record two podcasts, and then go play uh, the the Perry Maxwell nine mm-hmm. all by itself. And we went out, and I mean the second hole might be one of the coolest par threes you've ever played. Um, I took a photo. I can't remember which hole it was. I want to say, uh, is it third hole or fourth hole was a, uh, a press. Yeah. Three and four press three and four. I can't remember if it was, I think it was three. Is that where you're above? Yeah. It's a high one that goes down skinny short. Yeah. Yeah. And I I still contend it is one of the most beautiful golf photos I've ever taken. Oh yeah. It is. It's a just a beautiful, beautiful photo. Yeah. And, and and I was taken by, I mean, Press or Perry. I mean, it's an amazing 18-hole golf courses. I don't like to hear 
anybody talking down in one iota of any of those holes, mm-hmm. whether they're press or Perry. I just I yeah. won't hear it. Well, and uh, there's always a debate of whether like did press just take Perry's plans, you know, and you know just that have never been found. That yeah, um, that, that some lady found in her basement that she bought Perry's house and then she threw him out and yeah, she threw uh, out a lot. Yeah, yeah. but but the the rumor is that three and four, you know, like so where you would have taken that picture, three and yeah. four w- was initially supposed to be one hole in Perry's mind. Oh, um, and then press split them. So the par, the par three after hole three, three. I mean, they're so both. I mean, they're perfectly done. I'm oh, not. Oh yeah, going to, I, yeah, yeah. You know, but that I mean, the place is magic. So we we played eighteen holes with a big old grin on our face. Mm-hmm. Set up to do two podcasts, and um, the first one was on the history of Prairie Dunes, and um, you know the gentlemen that were on there, right? Yeah, uh, Rusty and Jim. Yeah, so Rusty and Jim are on there. And a funny story, I, I don't know how many people know this or if I've told it before or not, but uh, <laughs> Vaughn has his camera equipment. So it's it's on film. And I have you know my recording equipment. So we do it separately. He has both, but I record just so I can easily edit for the podcast. And I had Colton Craig coming up to do the history of Perry Maxwell coming mm-hmm. on second. So we're doing the interview and we go through and I don't even know how long it was with, with those two fine gentlemen, but we finish and they leave and they're exhausted. You know, it's kind of the middle of the day and they've already played golf and they just want to go home. So they leave and I I go to hit stop on the recording device and realize that I didn't hit record. Oh no. Oh, I think I remember (laughs) you you might've said that at the beginning of the episode and that, I mean, I, I was going to throw up. I was so upset. I mean, yeah. Rusty and Jim, I'm not going to ask them to come back right now because I know we just spent two hours talking about the history of the club. Yeah. Um, we've had one other time. Uh, this is back when Rod Morey was on the podcast with me where we recorded an episode and the the audio was so bad that we had to re-record it. And what happens when you re-record a podcast is you lose all the spontaneity. Yep. You know, like all of that, all of that energy that I would bring or the guest would bring is is now then manufactured. Mm-hmm. And I noticed it when we had to re-record an episode. But with this one, I mean, I I was I was in a really bad place, and I, I just turned to Vaughn. I should have kept the recording of that, the outtake, and I'd be like, Vaughn, did 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 you record that? Yeah. He goes, Yeah, I, I think so. And I'm like, No, 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 not the video did you get the audio? Yeah. And he's like, maybe I'm like, you need to check right now because when we were doing sound checks, I hit off rather than just let it roll through and edit it out. But I was doing off and on with my recording device and didn't reset it. A a mistake I will never make again. I I check it literally during every interview. If we're doing it live, the person who I'm interviewing will see me look at the device and make sure that we're getting it recorded. Yeah. And so, Poor, poor, you know, uh, Colton has to come on next. And I am, I, I, I mean, I, I, I swallowed at least two beers in about three seconds. Yeah. And, and we dove in and I, I mean, it turned out fine, but I think I had to do the intro like four times Yeah, because my nerves were frayed and the alcohol was hitting my system at the same time. with Yeah. Dehydrate. Yeah. Well, and even as you, as you said that originally, my stomach dropped and oh. and since you've been telling that, I, I've been looking over at my record button, 
like <laughs> five or six times, like making sure it is recording because yeah. that is just my worst nightmare. It is the worst thing that can happen to you. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, you, you know, oh, it's just, it, I can't describe the, the bottomless pit that I fell at that, felt at that moment. Yeah. But anyway, we, we did a podcast with, uh, Colton Craig, the architect on, uh, Perry Maxway as a, book coming out on playing all the maxwell courses and what he learned from them mm-hmm. and we got done and we were gonna colton and um von and i decided we were gonna play nine holes now mind you we've spent i don't know four hours you know recording a podcast um setting everything up taking everything down the sun's starting to go down quick nine holes and we go out i i'm playing really good golf like i'm mm. even par through like seven holes of Perry's design mm-hmm. and things are feeling good. I'm playing good. The sun is rapidly going down. So I remember playing the eighth and, you know, I get a par there, which was kind of like, I think I sank like a 30 footer, which is no. 17, right? No, 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 no. I bogeyed that hole. The par five. That one. Yeah. It's the 17th hole. Yeah. That's brutal. And I put it in the bunker on the right, which is a tough stinking hole. Anyway, yeah. the, the contours of those greens to go par at any point is pretty tough. Yeah, but I always I did get up and down. And I always say about that hole, I've made more eights than fours on that. Yeah, no, that it's hole. tough. Yeah, it's tough. And I mean, at this point, we can barely see. Yeah. So we get up on top of that the the you know the hill where mm-hmm. ATT box is, and we can see nothing. It is a pitch, but like we can see the ball barely. Yeah, but it is pitch black. The only thing you can see is the green oh, because yeah. they light it up at night, right? Yep, yep. Um, so the green you can see in the background, and I, I, you know, Vaughn's like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "What do we have to lose? Like, let's just hit. We'll all hit one ball, and then we'll go down there. And if we can't find them, we'll just take a drop where we think they would have gone." Mm-hmm. So Vaughn gets up first and hits his, and he's like, "Oh my god." And I'm like, what? And he goes, I have no idea where that went. And I'm like, I, no, I don't know either. And, you know, um, Colt gets up there and hits one again. Like, no, I mean, you can't even see it three inches off the face. Yeah. It's yeah. And I get up there and I hit and it did not feel good. Like, I'm like, I think I hit that into oblivion. Like it, yeah. it, it, it I think I hooked it into like, God knows where the gunch. And so we walked down there and, you know, we're all about the point where we're going to drop and Colton finds his. It's like, wow. Okay. All right. He's good. You know, kind of hits his shot up there. Walk a little bit further down here. Oh, there's Vaughn's. And, and I hit a little bit further than both of them. So I'm walking down further, and I literally have a ball in my hand ready to drop. And I can't, you know, it was, I, I know it was a wedge distance and, um, I was getting ready to drop and there's my ball, like center cut fairway. Yeah. Nice. Just like, Oh, you know, like almost getting the gleaming of the light. Yeah. I get up there and didn't hit a particularly great wedge. I think I had 30 or 40 feet and it, the pin was front right and I was on the far left. So there's like, I don't, I, I don't know if I remember this right, but there was a lot of movement from left to right. And I felt like six feet might've been less. And, uh, I sank the putt for even par round as Vaughn actually was behind me taking photos of that in time. Yeah. You know, like as I put the ball rolling, ball rolling, and then, you know, he with my hands up in the air, excited about parring the last hole. So it was a magical 
prairie dunes ending for us yeah oh yeah that's that's awesome i love to hear that and anything prairie dunes i just can't can't get enough of and um was there was there some some part of its history that that stood out to you that's a good question you know i mean i think hold on 10 seconds here okay sorry you're gonna have to pause this one that's all right hawkeye Nobody's going to kill you. Stop barking. <laughs> like attacking somebody, yelling, barking through the window. Um, you know what the question was again? Um, was there something about Prairie Dunes, um, the history of the place that stood out to you that, you know, was particularly memorable? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's so much the history as I just think what what I took away from it is, you know, it's not a lynx, but it felt like you were sitting on lynx land. You know what I mean? I mean, obviously, it's built up on dunes. And I'm sorry, my dog Hawkeye no, is you're going fine. You're fine. in the background, folks. So you're going to have to listen to her bark at somebody. The only issue Named is that his name is Hawkeye. <laughs> That's true, right? <laughs> so, um, no, I mean, the architecture just blew me away. Um, I mean, the stories from Rusty and Jim were amazing. I mean, the whole place is just it's an oasis of magic. Mm-hmm. You know, everything about it just makes you feel good. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's what golf should be. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an adventure. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not watered down. Um, it's not overly penal, but it, it asks you to do certain things. And if you don't do them, you are penalized. Mm-hmm but you do so with a smile rather than a frown. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. just, it's a thoroughly enjoyable walk. Yeah. That's a, that's a great way to great way to describe it. I, I like that. And it's amazing because it's literally in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I guess here, I'll give you a bit of history that I found fascinating are all the parallels between Perry dunes and sand hills, right? Mm-hmm. It was basically the sand hills of its day. It's in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. Yep. <laughs> Sand Hill in the middle of Nebraska. Corin Crenshaw coming to Prairie Dunes before they go to Sand Hills. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are just there's so many different parallel storylines between those two top twenty golf courses that I, I think out of everything, all the different stories of, of championships there, that probably sticks with me as much as anything. Yeah. Are all those yeah. amazing parallel stories? Yeah. And if if, yeah. oh, if you get the chance to go there, jump at it. Yep. You know, it's one of those places when you get invited, you just don't say no. Right. Right. And there's something about like, you know, so when I was there, there's there were there's all walks of life. The the, the national yeah. membership. There's celebrities. There's and then there's just you know no normal Bob. people there. Normal, awesome, yep. great people. Yep. Um, I remember when I can't remember if it was Andy Roddick or Justin Verlander, um, but when they first got became a member, um, the question that was asked was, "What private airport do we fly in Nebraska? Do we fly into? Yeah, to get there." And yeah. our response was, "Whatever's closest to Kansas, because we're not in Nebraska." You know, it was like, "Oh my gosh!" There was just so no knowledge of where it was. It was just like there's an amazing golf course somewhere in the middle of the country. They joined without going there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, wow. It, well, yeah. I'm 100% sure of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a very cool place, and I, I love it, like I've said. But um, 
Well, so one of the questions I really wanted to ask you this, and I've, I've just got, I've already taken too much of your time. Um, I've got two, Go two little questions I'm, I'm kind of curious about, but so my kind of topic that I really love about golf history is the Sabbath stick kind of mentioned yep. before. And yep. so I've got a replica version that uh, St. Andrews golf company made that I Absolutely. just, you know, that's, it's not really a, a, a piece of memorabilia cause it's probably made a year ago. Um, but uh, I know you've got a lot of golf memorabilia. Is there is there one that kind of sticks out as your favorite that you've collected wow. over the years in your golfers? Wow, that is a tough question. I know you've got a lot. <laughs> um, my favorite. Oh my. Um, boy, I'm going to be cheating on something in here, aren't I? <laughs> it's going to be jealous. You know, I I think the thing. Ugh, I think the th- let's go this way. The hardest thing I'd have trouble getting rid of. There's so many. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one of the oldest scorecards known to mankind. Oh, really? I, I've got a original photographer of Willie Park Sr. that was owned by the Park family. Mm. Um, you know, the bronze bust of Bobby Jones. But I think it's got to be Bobby Jones's personal golf club oh, from, yeah. his, from okay. his prom. From his uh, what? From his prime. It's okay. a hickory shot. Uh, Tom Stewart with his signature stamped into the head, Robert wow. Pryor, Jones Jr. from the 20s. That's amazing. Um, yeah. It's, I'm going to grab it right here. It's right next to me. Um, I picked it up you know, a while ago. It was on display uh, in the last for the last year at Oakmont Country Club uh, to celebrate the, uh, you know, the U.S. Amateur they had last year. Hmm. Um, but it's, I mean... You know, it's kind of like, you know, picking up history as much as anything. Uh, now, this will disturb a lot of people with a, what I'm about ready to tell you. But <laughs> I have always firmly believed that uh, golf clubs were meant to be played. And for about a year of me playing hickory, I played hickory hickories for about five years straight. And I played gutty golf for a year straight, just playing either, you know, Post 1900s, and then for a year I only played gutty golf, which is wow. pre 1900s. Yeah, and I actually played Bobby Jones's club in my bag. Oh yeah, I mean, some that's would cool. say that's a priceless artifact. Uh, you know, it was a golf club, and yeah. I had the I I checked the shaft, and it was sturdy with no cracks. Yeah. I kept it you know well oiled so it didn't dry out. Yeah, and I played it, and it plays just amazing. Yeah, it's a matching niblick. And uh, I guess the the joke that would go with it is that uh, Bobby Jones, out of all the clubs he ever owned, he always hated his mashy niblick. Really? (laughs) So that's probably why it's in good condition. Yeah. He probably just didn't use it a lot. Yeah. Well, no, I I think that's awesome. Then it it ties you to him in a in a different way that you've both had the you know the same experience kind of you know that you know that's that's. Hey, that I played his mashy niblick better than he did. Yeah. Yep. It's probably not true. I, I would think our levels of expectations are probably different. But yeah. in my mind, I'm I'm a better mashy niblick player than Bobby Jones. No one can prove you wrong. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm good friends with Bob the Fourth, uh, and I think he might disagree with me. Yeah. 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 Who knows? Yeah. Well, so um, one time I played uh, around with Zach Johnson's old putter. It's not not exactly okay. the same thing, but 
Um, yeah. you know, being an Iowa guy, the, absolutely he's, uh he's our hero and so i played one round at hyperion with it and did, did you we, get arrested for stealing it out of his bag or no that... no so he had he had he was it was he had done he was done with it he moved on to another one um yeah. and his uh college teammate was a member at at hyperion um actually went to the same high school as me but different years but um and somehow he had it and it we he let some bagroom guys take it out and play oh, around cool. i don't know if he he might have played with us that round too but that's how it kind of happened but. yeah this bobby jones club of mine has joined me at marion interlochen mm. and st andrews wow uh, so three legs of the the grand slam yeah and each time whoever's been playing with me is, and and, and I, i've taken it to oakmont many times but I, I i almost always offer for people to chip with it Mm-hmm. And people say no to that. Really? Like they're afraid they're going to break it. I'm like, listen, if by some miracle it breaks on you hitting a chip shot, we're going to be fine. Yeah. I, it is my risk, not yours. Now, yeah. I will flip this story a little bit. It's not the same, but it's close. I used to throw a tournament in the Midwest called the All-American. Okay. And it was the pre-1900 championship where you had to play gutty rules with a gutta percha ball and gutta percha clubs on a pre-1900 course. And we played at, um, originally, the Downers Grove Golf Course, which was the original uh, Chicago Golf Club before they moved to Wheaton. Mm. And that's where the first 18 holes in the United States were, were at Downers Grove, not in Wheaton, the current course. Okay. And okay. then uh, we moved it to Rock Island Arsenal, if you're familiar with that, right? Mm. Oh, you're not? No. What? Rock oh. Island Arsenal is on an island between Iowa and Illinois. Oh, yeah? It okay. was built in, I think, 1898, Rock 1897. Okay. I have their membership books somewhere in my golf is here. I don't know where it's at. Anyway, anyway wow. you know, 18-hole golf course, and we played gutty. So I had people from all over the, well, really the world would fly in to play in this gutty championship course. Yeah. Well, one yeah. day I'm at Downers Grove. It was the, one of the first two years of the tournament. And I was practicing, and this gentleman came out who was going to play in the tournament. And I had rental sets that were pretty much worthless, either replicas or, you know, just not non-valued clubs. And he said, hey, do you mind if I hit your driver? And like I said, the clubs I would play, I believe that old clubs were meant to be played. Mm-hmm. I pulled out a Tom Morris long nose driver teed up a ball, a gutty ball on sand, because you play on sand, tees mm-hmm. weren't invented back then. And he stuck that club in the dirt. Like oh. it didn't even it wasn't even a chunk. Like he buried it oh. in the dirt and snapped it in half. Oh man. And I bet he felt so bad. I mean, I don't think he did feel bad enough. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like I you know what? In those situations I'm I'm really calm. I've always yeah. been good in like really tough situations. Yeah. And I just I just said, oh, you know, it happens. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't just happen. And yeah. the club was worth thousands of dollars. Oh and my! It probably became a four hundred dollar club or something like after it was repaired. Oh jeez. So to make that feel better, it was uh, one of the last years of the uh, All American, playing at Rock Island Arsenal. I was playing a practice round. At Rock Island Arsenal. By the way, you need to look up this club. The history is amazing. Uh, yeah, um, I'm going to when we get William off here. William Haft signed uh, the charter for it when he was the Secretary of War. 
Hmm. I mean, it's it's just a crazy story. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was out in a practice round, and I was playing the second hole, and I had two long nose clubs. One was a Willie Park, and the other one was a Forgan. And I pulled out the Forgan and hit it, and my head shattered. Hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, that just happened. <laughs> and I put, so I pulled out the Willie Park and, like, re-teed because it was a practice round. And I shattered that one, too. Oh, no. <laughs> and for about, if there was anyone within screaming notice, they would have thought I had Tourette's. Yeah. The swear words, I think I made up yeah. swear words. I was swearing that much. Yeah. Wow. And from that forward, when I played Gutty, I would play the irons would all be original Carrick's. But I always had a replica driver. Oh, yeah. I had burnt, you know, between those two years, I, I don't even want to think. It was a lot. I don't know if it was $10,000, but it was it was a yeah. big number of value that was decreased <laughs> yeah. between two clubs. Yeah, yeah. And now just as you say that, like my, my hickory set is all together just fine, except for the driver is snapped in half, the head. Yeah, so, it happened. Yeah. You know? Gotta keep them oiled. That's yep. the kicker. Yeah, I definitely did not do that. So, well, um, like I said, I've kept you way longer than uh, I I had promised, but um, I really appreciate all your time. the The one question I love to finish with for everyone, yeah. is uh, what's your favorite course you've ever played? Oh, that's another tough one. <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. Okay, I'm going to cheat on you. Um, okay. I'm going to say the. Oh, um, well, you know, I've played a lot of good courses. Oh, yeah. Um, I've played most of the top 10 in the United States. Um, and I don't want to upset my friends that have hosted me, <laughs> but I'll say the most. Ooh, I mean, I'm going to probably say Cypress Point. Cypress? I mean, okay. Hudson Avenue, Pine Valley are clearly right there. Prairie Dunes is up there. Eastward Ho is up there. I mean, there's some amazing golf courses that I'm even leaving out. But yeah. Cypress Point, um, the beauty of that golf course is, it, I mean, it's a gut punch. I mean, it really, from your first tee shot over that weird hedge in the road, to you know playing the weird 18 that people complain about all the time yeah it is it's a moment in time that you'll never forget now that is from an architectural standpoint of awe mm -hmm. i would say i mean it's really close in scotland between preswick musabra and the old course at st andrews okay i will say the old course probably wins over those two even though i like the story of musabra mm. because there it's indistinguishable the history of saint andrews and the history of the old course yeah you know what i mean like everything yeah. you don't walk off the course ever like as long as you're in saint andrews you are walking on golf ground yeah, yeah. that's not the in presswick i mean you walk a half mile from Presswick and you're in a town, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like a normal town, you know, in, in Musabra, you walk out of Musabra and you're just in Musabra and most of the town probably doesn't even know the history of, you know, that oh, golf yeah. course. But in St. Andrews, it's, you know, it's the Sistine Chapel. I mean, yeah. it, it's revered everywhere you go. Right. It, it's part of that town's DNA. 
Yeah. Like everywhere. Like you, you know, walk a mile into town yeah. and, and it's still there. Yeah. And yeah. for that reason, you know, maybe even over the beauty of Cyprus, that it's just, it's magical, you know, mm-hmm. and, and anybody can play it, mm-hmm. you know, it, you know, time and effort to get there. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's otherworldly. Yeah. That's cool. Those are both ones, both ones on my bucket list. I think the St. Andrews one is a little more realistic, but <laughs> hope to get, you never know see you those know, places. Eric. Yeah. Five years ago. And I've, I've said this before five years ago, outside of, outside of Scotland, the best golf course that I played and this is no, you know, like drop off, but it was Pebble Beach and it was because I could pay to play it. And in the last five years, um, you know, I've been very lucky to meet a lot of amazing people um, that have taken me to play, you know, amazing places. I, yeah. You know, this next week, um, Los Angeles Country Club, hmm. uh, Bel Air and Riviera. I've never played in L.A. before. Okay. And I'm going to and I'm playing <laughs> three of you know the best golf courses in the United States in one trip. And that's just because golfers are the best people. Yep. You know, yep. there's really, I, I, I mean, truly, I'm, I, I am no different than anybody else. I've just had a weird path and a lot of good friends. Yeah. And I th- truly believe this. I truly, truly believe this, that if you have a plan to play, you know, some of the greatest golf courses in the United States, private or public, you absolutely can do it in this day and age. Mm. Those, those members are all over the place on social media and they are some of the nicest people in the entire world. Yeah. Yeah. And they love having people at their course. Yeah. I mean, it's like when you go to Oakmont, Oakmont, you know, um, is very near and dear to me. When you watch um, Monday through, well, let's say Sunday through Tuesday and then Thursday, Friday and Saturday, every member that's playing, generally speaking, has three guests from outside the club. Hmm. It's not, you know, you don't see a lot of four members going to play. I'm sure it yeah. happens. But it, yeah. it is the majority versus the majority. Yeah. Pine yeah. Valley, same way. Yeah. Augusta National, same way. Cypress yeah. Points, same way. It's not like, you know, four members are getting together like your local country club. Right. There is an opportunity to play these places. You just have to, like, you know, just explore it, learn more about either golf history or golf course architecture, have an interest, and just be a really good person yeah. and more importantly you know thank them when you get the opportunity go yeah. out of your yeah well and that's one of the things i've learned from doing this podcast is that there are a lot of really amazing people in golf and i've, I've been amazed at who's even said yes to being on the show and and now you're one of those people that i one of those amazing people in golf who've come on the show and i feel like now i've met you and and learned about you and and uh i just really appreciate your time here today um oh, and, only, and everything I, you do for for the game of golf you ran out of people eric again there's no amazing people and you're like oh yeah. i guess they call this connor guy i think he's from iowa no that that definitely was <laughs> not it we're only uh 16 in and we, we got a lot more to go you're on you were at the top of the list so there you go there yeah. you go so I thank mean, you for being here what what's that Absolutely. i say i think it's great what you're doing oh I think thank it's good you for the game of golf thank you i appreciate it and uh yeah, everyone who's listening, go follow Connor at uh, at S Historians. Correct. That's correct. And you I'll, know, the I'll... first years I had it, I had no idea what it was. To be honest with you. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I'll link link everything in the show notes so that everyone can can go find you and and uh, learn more about golf history. So thank you. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and rate The Looper wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Looper Podcast. Talk to you next time.